So we are back in Hebrews. Speaking of Clio, we had the whole summer of love, which was fantastic. It was really a, a great uh, series, I think. I, know, I don't know about you, but to be reminded every single week <clears throat> that God loves us is not a bad way to spend the summer. Coming at it from so many different angles. I hope you're convinced that. Uh, so when you feel loneliness or where are you, God? You can cast your mind back to the numerous reasons in all of creation, inside of ourselves, outside of ourselves, in this community. There are people here who will remind you, and not just with words, but with actions, that you are loved, that you are precious, that you are important, that you are needed. Um, and that goes for every single one of us, no matter your circumstances of life, uh, how you feel about yourself. Uh, trust that God loves you today. Uh, and this is the day that the Lord has made. Uh, and returning to Hebrews, we're going back into this amazing New Testament book, which is essentially is a, it's a long sermon, longer sermon than even I do. Um, but it is really just this a presentation of Christ, of Christ Jesus, the one who loves us so much. We're going to jump right in to Hebrews chapter 10. It'll be on the screen if you have a Bible, you'll be welcome to follow along there. Keep me honest, make sure I'm not misquoting things. Right? Um, so Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 39. Last week, after, sorry, last week, last time we were in Hebrews, we actually talked about that passage, Melody referenced about not forsaking the gatherings together of yourselves, but doing it all the more as you see the day approaching. Um, some would say that the signs all around the world uh, are, 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 you know, grumblings of, of the coming end. We don't know that. People have said that for millennia. But we are always told to be aware that, that we have today, we have no guarantee of tomorrow. And the writer of Hebrews is very, very concerned about his friends. We don't really know exactly who his audience are, but we know that they are struggling with perseverance in, in the faith that they have and, and grasped and embraced the faith in Christ. Uh, and we're going to do eight more weeks and then we'll be done with Hebrews and we'll be at Advent and then Christmas will come. Can you imagine it? Where did the year go? So I'm going to briefly pray and then uh, we will read chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. Lord, uh, your word is good, your word is true. Lord, as I stand here and I ponder and reflect and share the journey that you have taken me on through your, your word this week, I pray that you would open all of our ears and our hearts. Not to me, but to your Holy Spirit. Spirit, that you might move freely among your people to change and transform us. With the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, be acceptable to you, my Lord and my Redeemer. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. 
and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised for in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And but my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Strong words to come back into Hebrews. I wish it was a little cheerier. But very purposeful words. If you recall how the writer began Hebrews, the very first words that he wrote were these. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, who he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Right out of the gate, this incredible statement that God has communicated with his people, with his creation, has set aside everything that stood in the way and has come to us, for us. Then he spends many chapters outlining all the riches and the power and the beauty and the reality of what has happened in Christ, who Jesus is, what he has done, that everything has changed, nothing is the same. Jesus is Lord of all, yet he entered into the depths of our condition. He became like one of us and he brought us to God. Jesus is sufficient for every human need. Jesus is with us and for us in every single way. Jesus has opened the door to God that cannot be closed. He has taken all of our sin away, has canceled the debt that we owed. We are forgiven, we are free. Jesus is an anchor for our souls that cannot be dislodged. Jesus has conquered death. Death is no longer to be feared. He has given us life. Everything has changed. Why now, at this point, does the writer express such concern about the condition and destiny of not only his brothers and sisters, who he calls my beloved brothers and sisters, but also himself? This is not a distant warning. He says, we. He's including himself in this warning. This is actually not the first time in Hebrews. There's several warnings that we've already heard sprinkled throughout the text in between explaining the glorious goodness and power of Christ and the gospel, he has warned his friends and us. Chapter two, we must pay the most careful attention therefore to what we have heard, so we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received it just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. 
It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. These are strong words. There's been arguments, most commentaries that talk about this passage talk about, does this mean that someone who has come to Christ can lose their salvation? There's kind of two schools of thought in that. There's the Calvinists who would say that that you are elect, you are chosen, nothing could ever change that. Maybe people so far as to say that some people are not chosen. It cannot be saved. They are not part of the elect. There's other perspectives that say that, that your salvation is kind of a fragile thing. And all throughout history, people have argued. But that's not the point here. He's clearly talking to Christians, and as we'll see, he does believe that they will persevere. But the point is that the people of God are either moving forwards in their growth as Christ's disciples, or they are moving backwards. And he is really concerned that the circumstances in which his friends find themselves, they are difficult, and there is a possibility that they will shrink back. That they will shrink back. The church has always had these times, these seasons, when the church becomes ineffective demoralized, uh, caught up in other activities, and forgets the core reality of the gospel that empowers the church. You may have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor during World War II. I have a picture of him on my wall. He was inspiring to me. He was a man of conviction. Totally different time, the Lutheran church in Germany and he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And he begins by talking to his church of his time, a Lutheran church in Germany, and saying that we have so embraced the concept of grace that we have cheapened it. And he talked about cheap grace versus costly grace. And he was concerned that the church had become simply a social gathering of people to be nice, and they've forgotten the pursuit of God, the cost discipleship. He wrote this, costly grace of the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. And I believe that whilst we're alive, every time we gather, every time, whether it's just with friends and we, we think about faith, it's always the day to turn again to a fresh pursuit of Christ. That's the beauty of grace, actually, is that no matter what has happened, no matter where you may have wandered, today is always the day where you can turn once again and pursue him afresh. And he will meet you there. Jesus has not changed. His promises have not changed. His calling has not changed. He calls us to wake up to the reality of who he is and seek and embrace it. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer is going to tell us this. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. This morning I was talking about how long I've been here. I my water actually. So much drier in California than it is in Scotland. <laughs> Yeah, I was talking about how long I've been here, and I realized it's going to be six years in May. And uh, I was like, wow, that's crazy. 
But then it's like, well, it feels so short because the pandemic kind of just like felt like it just took a whole bunch of our lives away, right? So really, it's only been three years, right? But you know, it was a change, a change agent. You know, when the pandemic kicked off, uh, one thing that very quickly made itself apparent to me was that, given that I cannot control these circumstances, I can take them as being, in some mysterious way, from God's hand to change us. And we talked about orientation, disorientation, and new orientation. If you remember that, the first sermon series was about times in life where you're just going along and things are fine and you're in the rhythm. And then something happens, like a pandemic, and then the wheels fall off. And you can panic, and you can scream, and you can fight, and you can struggle, or you can say, God, you're still the king of my life, you're still Lord of all. And maybe you're going to do things through this that you couldn't, that couldn't happen any other way. And as painful as this is, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue you through this, and I will let you change us. And as a church, some things were changed. We realized some things about us that we're not as strong as we thought we were. Even our even church allegiances are, are, were not as tight and strong as we often hoped they would be. Uh, you know, the, the whole of America went through this disunity to last week that made us see any better. It taught us also that we really need one another. Even the introverts started getting freaked out about not being around people. <laughs> right? Like, whoa, this is a new thing. Miss people. Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of negative consequences too. I mean, the, 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 the opportunities for people of God continue to, to grow as we see the fallout of that time of isolation and then struggle. But by, by worry, and I think the author here is worrying that now that time has kind of passed, we can just settle back into business as usual. And that, that's the last thing that, that we should be doing as God's people. Because it's not business as usual. We're still in this place where the needs are, are so great for people to know this God who loves them. So the writer wants his people and us to know that, that we can slide into this. It's very possible, regardless of your connection to Christ or your history or your, your family always went to church, your dad was a pastor, you're a human being just like these people and all of us have the potential of becoming an active, sedentary, asleep, you know, lost. And he gives us three challenges, three, three ways in which this can happen. But thankfully, he's a very practical writer. He also gives us three solutions. Gives them and us three solutions. So the first thing is, is the strong, strong words at the beginning. And it's this word that you may have heard of, it's called apostasy. Apostasy. And it means a deliberate and public rejection of Christ. And, and the words were, if you deliberately keep on sitting after you've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice of sins is left. And that's where people start to worry. Well, where's the line for deliberate sinning? The Apostle Paul was clear, as we were talking this morning with Mike, talking about when he said that the good that I want to do, I don't do. The bad that I don't want to do, I, I end up doing. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He's confessing that he falls into sin. Every single one of us wake up in the morning and, and make choices, say things, 
have impulses and things which are not God's best. That's not what we're talking about. A deliberate sinning. But we have only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire will consume the enemies of God. So you, someone who's becoming an enemy of God, this is public, this is extreme rejection. So someone who has in some way connected, there's somehow the potential for them to become actually an enemy of the gospel. Trampled the Son of God underfoot, treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant to sanctify them, insulted the spirit of grace. So I'd say, first of all, if you're worried that you might have committed this, I would say you probably don't need to worry about it. Because someone who comes under this term, they are they are extremely, you know, and they wouldn't be here, let's just say that. They they would apostasy means to leave. So, however, there is, the author wants us to know, there is a road from here to there. There is a road from here to there that we could walk. And, and there's two ways that this can happen. The first one is apathy, becoming apathetic. I was thinking about, I'm hoping you have one of these too. Or maybe my family's just weird, but do you have a junk drawer in your house? <laughs> yes. Where did that come from? Some people's house is just a junk drawer, right? <laughs> I've had times when my whole house was the junk drawer. But it's a little dirty secret, you know? The things that you don't know what they're for, really, you might need them someday. You know, it's an end of the natural place to go. And you just have to draw it just go, but every now and then you will go in there and clear it out and find something. Or you'll just be, you know, courageous and just dump the whole thing into the trash. But it, it can become, our faith can become like that. That it's not front and center. We have it. There we need it. Might need it sometime. It's easy to do that. In fact, it's our natural tendency is for that to be our faith. But without serious consideration, disciplined pursuit of Christ, my gravity will naturally fall into sort of an apathy. I'm being really honest right now. When I was in Scotland, I did not go to church. I know, right? He <laughs> said I'm not. Part of the reason is my, my parents are currently not attending the church they were attending. It's a church my sister attended, and it's way too painful for my mom to even consider being in that community, which so we spent a lot of time talking about, okay, but what is your community? Who's gonna, who's with you? Because you need that. But I didn't go, and it was a busy time. You know, like, my kids were there, my parents were there, my brother came along, niece and nephew. There wasn't a lot of room for a spiritual activity that I normally would tend to do. And I was thinking to myself, though, like, is a lot of the activity I tend to do because it's part of my job? You know, you don't have that benefit. You have to. Open your Bible. You know, you know, I get paid to open my Bible, right? But, but it didn't did honor me. Because while I was there, I did notice a bit of a dampening of my fervor. Simply because I was not in my usual rhythms and patterns of discipleship and worship. It happens that easy in two weeks. And I'm just being very honest with you. And it was good for me to realize, like, this is just not self-sustaining. 
you know, let go, let God, I'm here. It requires activity. You know, there's a, there's a word, three words actually, you may have heard of, therapeutic moralistic deism. And there was a report that came out a year or two ago. This actually, this phrase came out years and years ago in a book uh, by Christian Smith. Um, and he turned this, this concept of what faith is kind of like for a lot of people these days. It's therapeutic because it's about feeling good. You know, we want to feel like coming to church on Sunday, man, it really makes you feel good for the week. That's what church is about, right? And moralistic is about being good, being a good person. And deism, that's the concept that God is a remote, distant one who set things in motion that isn't really that involved in your life. But if you need it, it's like break glass in case of emergency, but it'll come help you out, right? Well, just a, a year or two ago, there was a big survey done that said, like, according to all these surveys and things, a huge, vast amount of believers, Christians in America, this is their faith. This is what it entails. It's about feeling good, being a good person, and God is there in case you need him. That is, that's a step on the road that might lead to out-and-out rejection. Second thing is this. It talks about deliberately keep on sinning. That's a clue. And it's this unrepented habitual sin. You know, we've all had times when there's something that we just can't stop doing. You know? It may not be the, to the level of our, you know, our intervention situation or whatever, but you know, somebody's got to save somebody and takes away their body mass immediately and they have to struggle with smoking, whatever it is, because they want it to stop, right? Um, but there are things that continue on. And a couple of examples of that is Judas, very famous disciple who betrayed Jesus. It's interesting in the Gospels that he didn't start there. He didn't start. He actually started following Jesus. But the gospel writers tell us that he was the person in charge of the purse for the, for the group. And he was dipping into the, into the money because he went. Just that little thing, the secret thing that was happening, which led down this path. There's another famous story in the Old Testament about a man called Samson. Famous, he tried to serve God, lost all his friends, right? That's why he was this, one of the strong. That's a mighty good there, by the way. Just you watch. <laughs> But Samson, an incredible story. I don't know if you've read or familiar with it, but he was very gifted. He was he was an anointed man, and he took it all for granted, and he just messed around with things that were not what he was supposed to be doing. And he's very presumptuous about, you know, his strength and you know, getting himself into trouble, burst himself out. But it ended up one day where he couldn't break out anymore. It's a really tragic story. Uh, my first pastor, when I just came back to faith, um, preached a sermon about Samson. I've never forgotten what he said about, about Samson or about sin. If you just court sin in your life, like Samson does, with this presumption that, that it's all going to be okay, is this, that sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It will keep you there longer than you wanted to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. And I think that is so true. So the first thing is apostasy, which doesn't start with that, 
but it can lead you can get to a place where you find yourself suddenly rejecting the faith. The second thing that he's concerned with is forgetfulness. I'm getting older, and I'm learning what forgetfulness is, like names, etc. Uh, where I left my shoes, phone, hat, wife. <laughs> but this is the kind of forgetfulness. And, and I think this is another natural situation of, of, of lengthening of time. So he talks to them and says, remember those earlier days after you received the light. There was something wonderful about someone who's just come to faith in Christ. You know? Maybe you know that for yourself. Maybe you have memories. I have memories when I first came to faith when I was 13. I was like this little dynamo. I prayed constantly. I asked God for ridiculous little things and they came, they came to be. The crazy stuff. I didn't know that kind of faith. You're like, this is true. God answers prayer. Okay. Let's go. Um, but there's something about the passing of years that you can kind of forget that. Right? I wonder who's been a believer longest in this room right now. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. But I'm sure they can testify to that, that there's something that can happen over time. That we can forget what God has done. I have a guy actually at a church who was teaching a Sunday school, and it felt to me, and I was quite young in the faith again, so I was very critical. About things that, that he would teach some school, he would always refer to this, this time when he lived in Florida as being like God did all these things. This is like two decades prior, but I never ever taught, ever had to talk about what God was doing in his life currently. That's, that's a challenge, that's a problem. Okay, the third thing so, first thing is I just slide away out of faith, but apathy, uh, sinfulness when you're not dealing with it. Forgetting what's the second thing. The third thing is weariness. Just becoming weary. Do you ever feel that? Like you guys, you know, if you're serving, you're praying. I mean, how many of us have prayed for something for decades and nothing seems to have changed? And you're weary. Maybe for yourself or someone you love. Or just serving. I mean, I mean. Change is slow sometimes. And we can just become weary and a bit, bit um, disillusioned. And, and this is a concern for the author. But these are the three things that he's concerned for his people. He say, be careful. Be careful. Don't be one who walks away. Don't forget. And, and Yes, you're weary, right? So, the, so here's the solution. The first one is this. Fear God. So for the apostasy thing and the sin thing, fear God and don't fear your community. And I'll explain what that means in a minute. The first one is maybe obvious. He starts with this thing. It's a dreadful thing to fall at the hands of the living God. In Psalm 36, verse 1, the writer says, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There's no fear of God you know, we can find ourselves very off balance. Once again, that grace is so sufficient and forget that, that God is also this unrighteous judge who holds everything 
in his, in his care and in his hands. You know, there's many models of God, and, and some of them are very unhelpful. One of them is like, just like, like Jesus, he's this, oh, it's all okay, it's cool, don't worry, he's gonna chill guy. You know, maybe Jesus. But he is God Almighty. There is no power to compare. He holds everything together by his will. He is ultimate, he is over all. There are some doctrines that, you know, we would say, when he's cast someone into hell, we would call him righteous. That's a, that's a tall order, but he is perfect in all of his ways. He is the righteous one. And we've been offered this relationship, this salvation that cost him everything. Poured out his life for us. Reminds me of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. See my tattoo, my daughter did. Narnia. Obscura, yeah. She's got her car, she's taking uh, appointments. <laughs> no, I love Narnia. I love the since I was a little kid. But what I really love about it is, is, is how it just gives so much truth that just creeps in. And one of the greatest things is, is this time when um, Lucy uh, meets uh, the Beaver family. Really quick aside, my daughter, I made a watch her watch the Narnia one, the BBC one from way back in like the 70s. And she was really young, like five or something like that. So I expected her to just kind of catch all the mystery of it. And then the scene came when there's the Beaver family and we're there and so I'm like, I said, oh, Kira, what's that? Like, she said, someone dressed as a Beaver. <laughs> <laughs> well, nice try, Because even at that point, most of the cinema had moved past the cheap costumes of BBC. <laughs> but Lucy meets them and and discovers that Aslan, who is this great king, even though winter has taken over, the white witch is ruling over this land that it's always winter and never spring, Aslan, there's rumors that Aslan is on the move. And Lucy discovers that he's a lion. And she said, is he quite safe? And she feels really rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who'd appear before Aslan without their knees talking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you know what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Of course he isn't safe. God is not safe. Talks about it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living. But he is good. Proverbs 9 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Way back in the early church, after the Holy Spirit came and the church was born, and they were empowered by the Spirit to do what we're talking about, to be accountable to each other, to gather regularly together, to never forsake that, to eat together, to be in each other's homes, and take communion and worship and pray and praise. And miraculous things were happening among them. It doesn't just happen by accident. They were showing up, and God was showing up in their midst. But it says in Acts chapter 9 that the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord, and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, increased in numbers. That 
song this morning that Melody mentioned and Ben and those guys sang about I'm not afraid. I'm not totally emotional there. I think I've been carrying a lot of fear recently from life circumstances. You know, when, some, when you lose someone in a tragic way, it makes everything seem very fragile. And you can feel scared, afraid for everyone that you love. And I've been feeling that, I think, in that song. The words were hard to sing, but it, but it moved me. Uh, and and it, it reminds me of, it reminds me of this Oswald Chambers quote, which I, uh, says this, remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. The author wants them to have this sense that God is the primary one whom they should have concerns about, not everything else around them. Psalm 34, 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me, he delivered me from all my fears. Second thing is, so fear the Lord, a reverence and an awe, cultivate that. The second thing is, don't fear your community. This is really important, don't fear your community. In, in the passage in verse 28, the writer refers back to the old Mosaic law, which was very severe. It says, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died for that mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, that's all changed. Now, actually, the picture is, for us who are struggling with sin, we are surrounded by witnesses to the grace of God, and we are to go to them, not to be afraid of our community, but to seek them out, to keep us in a good place, encouraged on the path. I, I, I see that here. I see that here. It is a beautiful thing. I see you guys leaning on each other, confessing to one another. So fear God, don't fear your community. This is God's provision for us to keep walking. The second thing, if you're being forgetful, he says, remember, remember, and act. And what was he asking them to remember? He's asking them to remember a time of trial. And I don't know what that time of trial was, but it sounds like it wasn't to the point of anyone dying. But there was some persecution and some trouble. He says, you endured. You were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. You stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered with those in prison. You withstood the confiscation of your property knowing that you have greater possessions. You say, remember when your circumstances moved you to faithful action. Remember. You know, that's what faith is for. God gives us faith to produce fruit. Faith is not something that, you know, like in a Beauty and the Beast, you put under a little glass vial and you put it in a cupboard somewhere. Faith is something that you embody, which but leads into action, and especially that kind of action that you will side with the marginalized, the oppressed, those who are struggling, you go to them, you sit with them. And I think we're confused maybe what faith is for, as part of the problem. I have faith. It's about a belief system. 
but it's really about what therefore do we do as a result of believing this kind of God. You ever seen the videos of kids who are like given a rotary phone and said, what's this? Use this. Or like a Walkman. Have you seen those videos on YouTube? They're pretty funny. And they have no idea what these things are for. They're like, what is it? Like some kind of... There's actually a picture. I think. Is that a picture of it? Did I not put a picture on there? Well, I don't really need a picture of a little kid with a phone upside down. Because I love the button music. What is our faith for? It's actually not that difficult. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, so mind and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. Faith should lead to action. That's what you should ask me today. Say, God, I believe, therefore, what is my, what is my mission today? To see the world as, as, a, as a workshop, as a, as a field of harvest, the place where, because you have faith in a God who is with you, so even to the end of the earth, I will never leave or forsake you. You can confidently go into the world and make a difference. So remember, and I think that's what new believers do. It's embarrassing sometimes. I go to goodwill, that's first a Christian again. Now, with a Christian we met in the beginning, and then I came back to faith when I was 29, I wouldn't shut up about it to people. I go to Goodwill, and I'd be stalking the religious book section, and I'd be striking up conversations with everyone. Everyone would listen to me about Jesus. I don't know if I have that zeal anymore. I mean, some of that's wisdom, right? Wisdom would be like, hey, you, I don't know, where, what, that bus hit you tomorrow, where would you go? You know, I don't know, right? But, but there's something that can kind of become missing, and I think when we step into it, we act, that's how it grows. We say, I believe in you, God, therefore today, show me someone, and I will talk to them. I don't know what I'm going to say, I'm going to go. The faith that is unused is, is dormant. It's like a windmill when there's no wind. It's like a water wheel when the riverbed is dry. Maybe nice to look at, but it's not accomplishing anything. So he says, remember those days when you were active. Turn to them. And then the, the weariness. What might be the cure for when you're just feeling weary? Well, the first thing I would ask is, where's your weariness coming from? Because I asked myself that this week. Because I'm feeling pretty weary. And I remember that scripture in Matthew 11 where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. If that's true, why so often do I feel burned out, weary, demoralized? Is it perhaps because I'm working for someone else's agenda? other than the Lord whose burden in his life who offers me rest. Am I seeking every day to control, to build something, to secure things, to strive? I think most of our weariness comes from these issues and, and, and to let go and have a trust that God is directing your steps. We'll take care of you. You don't need to strive and fight we might encounter some rest. 
some rhythms of life. We can't, we're not made to go, 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 go all the time. Who here in this room takes, unless you're retired, because you're just doing nothing, right? I know that. But those of us who are working, I'm kidding. I know some people are retired, they will have never worked so hard in all their lives. Who here takes a deliberate Sabbath once a week, one day a week, where you take deliberately a Sabbath rest? I know why you're weary. Some of us don't think we can do it economically. But do we think that perhaps God would want us to trust Him and take a day of rest? Now in Scotland, I've watched my brother run here to there, here to there, and I know my brother dearly. And I said to him, I know you're not much in the spiritual thing right now, but you've got to take a rest. You've got to take a day. And he's terrified of that prospect. So the first thing it is, is, is um, where's our weariness coming from? Is it God's fault? Is he giving you too many assignments? Or is it our incredible need to control and to secure and to strive that we seem to spend so much time doing? And the second thing is to anticipate every day what is to come, the reward that is to come. I think sometimes we have this mistaken idea that because we are saved, life should be pretty easy and comfortable. But the author doesn't say that. The author says this, says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And but my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. You're not saved yet. That's a weird thing to say to Protestants who have this concept of like, you say a prayer, done deal. The full salvation is yet to come. And it's gonna come. And it is going to be magnificent. But right now, we are literally in the fields of toil. We're in a land of battle. We are on a pilgrim road. And if we understand that, then it can sustain us each day because we're not surprised when this world throws things at us and deals with us. He wants to tell his friends, why are you surprised by what is happening? You don't need to be weary because as if tomorrow is going to be completely different. But there is a day coming and coming soon when this will, be take, will take place, when your salvation will I told you guys uh, a couple months ago that I think as a result of my own kind of trauma, I found great interest in this book about Yosemite. And no, it's not about the wildlife. It's about all the deaths that have occurred in Yosemite National Park, called Off the Wall. I know that's totally morbid and weird, but for whatever reason, I read the thing cover to cover. And then Mando comes to me with a book and says, oh, yeah, that's only I read that book. He said, no, this is the, the Grand Canyon version. <laughs> Which I meant cover to cover. But one, of the, but one of the great things about it is if I ever go to the wilderness again, there's a few things I've learned that I will not do. And one of them applies very much to this concept of perseverance. So many people, when they're out hiking, got into trouble and they started to panic. They're worried. And their mind does something weird. 
and so many people wandered off the path, the perfectly good path, and headed off in a shortcut or something to try and get saved, to save. Not trusting the path, headed off, and they ended up walking off a cliff or getting stuck on a ledge, spending two nights in the winter winds or whatever. And if they had just stuck to the root of the plan, so many stories again and again and again. The person had just thought and stuck with the plan that they had, they would have made it to say, they would have been fine. Persevere. He is coming. We're not in this place of salvation quite yet. And so a relief to actually hear that and go, no, this is how it's, it's going to be like this. It was like to these people, but he is coming and he will bring full salvation. There's a life of anticipation, watchfulness, confidence. It's a good antidote to weariness and trust. And I think, I think we are in a wonderful place right now. With all that's happening in our world around us, we are one of the place. And so I, I affirm what he ends this passage with for our community. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. That is us. We trust in the one, the one who the author has told us again and again and again and again he is trustworthy. Our job is simple. Our job is simply to respond each day is not to be perfect, is to be in community with your brothers and sisters who wake up each day confident that God will lay your steps out before you. Doesn't make mistakes, you have not wondered. And, and when you feel weird or that you're stuck, to, to depend on this community. We are your brothers and sisters. The author includes himself in all of this. We need each other. And in that spirit, we're going to take communion today together, which again is, is a double meaning, okay? It, it expresses our dependence upon God for all we have, but also something we do together. It talks about the unity that we have. So uh, we're going to, I'm going to ask Melody to come up and the other uh, to serve. <clears throat> and Ben's going to come up and uh, we'll be preparing to sing together. But in your own time, take a moment of quiet and ask God to search your heart. And just express to him what, what is deepest, truest about you right now. Whether it's rejoicing, whether it's sadness, whether it's confusion, to sit with that, whatever is most true about you are, and know that he is with you, he is you, and he has a way forward. And then when you come up and take the elements, and then we'll hold them together and take
a simple way of doing exactly what we're talking about, knowing that God hasn't changed, Christ hasn't changed, none of his promises have changed, they are available and present for you right now, and no matter what, what burdens you carry, no matter what you're afraid of, his power and promises are here for us now, and this can simply be a chance this morning take this bread and this cup to say yes I surrender all to you Lord Jesus and that you trust him that he will guide you direct you, heal you comfort you, challenge you that's what it can be this morning we come at Christ's invitation to this table of communion with reverence and awe come remembering Come seeking to be reminded. Come and receive for perseverance onwards. Let's together, before we take the elements, say together the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' disciples said, How should we pray? And he told them these words. Let's read together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We take the bread in remembrance of him. Thank you. 